0: Season's greetings. My name is Angel Wood and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. Welcome back to Crime of the Truest Kind. It is Angel Wood. Online, Crime of the where you can link to the gallery for the photos that I share for every episode. Crime of the Truest Kind on Facebook and Instagram at TruestKind on Twitter. Thanks for following along. I appreciate it. It's fun to talk to you, those who are discovering the show. It is about New England primarily and Northeast crime stories as I get to it, but mostly New England. So by now you are on to me in my local references. It's crime stories, part history lesson, mostly for me, because I really love digging into this old information. All right, today I take you to Wakefield, Massachusetts. Wakefield, Massachusetts is a lovely suburb of Boston, a population just shy of 25,000 at the 2010 census. Not much more than that now. It's a bit bougie, pretty white, just ten miles north of Boston. It's located conveniently to pretty much everything. Easy access via two major highways, Route 93 and 95 slash 128, which is essentially the same thing. And a commuter train on the MBTA. Many notables from Wakefield, my friend Adam Twelve, Radio DJ, currently heard in Rock 929. I'd be surprised if he ever hears this. A long list of sports figures that I will not list. Some big names, Israel Horovitz, playwright, screenwriter, director an actor born in Wakefield. He wrote a lot about Wakefield, including a book known as The Wakefield Plays. His son is maybe more recognized in certain demographics. Adam Horowitz, also known as Ad-Rock from the Beastie Boys, the elder Horowitz co-founded the Gloucester Stage Company in 1979, served as artistic director until 2006, Served on the board, but resigned after the New York Times reported allegations of sexual misconduct. I had nearly forgotten about that very important last part. He did pass away in November of this year. Buffy St. Marie, the award-winning folk singer, songwriter, Academy Award-winning composer, grew up in Wakefield and graduated from Wakefield High in 1958. She was born in Canada and is considered among the most recognized contemporary Indigenous Canadian American artists. And I also ran into her at an airport in Montreal, I was at a music conference and she was given like a Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> Scott Brown, former Massachusetts state and U.S. senators from Wakefield. He won Ted Kennedy's long-held Senate seat in a special election against Massachusetts Attorney General Martha Coakley after Kennedy died in 2009 of a brain tumor. And a real come-from-behind win, Brown beat Coakley. He'd been trailing, but in a surge in the polls, something I liken to the turtle in the hare. He became the first Republican candidate elected in the U.S. Senate from the Commonwealth in nearly 40 years. Simply put, Martha Coakley ran a really bad campaign, as evidenced by the fact that a Republican won Ted Kennedy's seat. In 2012, Scott Brown ran to serve a full Senate term, but got spanked by Democratic challenger Elizabeth Warren. She took 53.7 percent of the vote, making her the first woman ever elected to the U.S. Senate from Massachusetts in 2012. Elizabeth Warren remains Massachusetts state senator and Scott Brown moved to New Hampshire to try to win a New Hampshire Senate seat. And well, that didn't work out so well, Brown went on to serve as U.S. ambassador to New Zealand and Samoa under the Trump administration. Also from Wakefield, Charlie Moore. Locals know him as that guy who does the fishing show on NECN. He also wears a lot of Ed Hardy. A major attraction in Wakefield is Lake Winnipowit. You can see its other attraction from there, the monstrous Jordan's Furniture Complex in neighboring Reading. It's ginormous and something I don't think the residents of Wakefield were very psyched about. You can't swim in the lake, but you can kayak on the lake and walk around the lake and run around the lake and have picnics around the lake and walk your dog around the lake. Fun fact, Wakefield is home to one of the oldest flying model airplane toy manufacturers in the world, Paul K. Willow Company, well known for its line of balsa wood model airplane kits. Now, I know nothing about model airplanes, nor will I pretend to speak with any authority on this topic, but I thought it was really cool. And as a New Englander, I think I should tell you that, that we are home of one of the most famous balsa wood model airplane kit manufacturers in the world. I love to dig through all of this information. Wakefield was once home to an amusement park called Pleasure Island. I didn't even know this. It was intended and billed as the Disneyland of the Northeast. The park lasted about 10 years before it folded. It took that long to figure out that it was cold in Massachusetts seven months out of the year. The reason for closing, unseasonably cold weather that put a damper on attendance outside of peak months. In 1971, a fire burned down much of what remained of the park. That area was turned into an office park called Edgewater Park. Now, Edgewater Park, no connection to Edgewater technology which I am about to tell you about. This is Christmas week. We are all feeling a lot different about the season. Many of us are out of work. Others are working remotely for the foreseeable future. And for many service and retail staff forced to soldier on, this is Hell Week. Christmas week in the office is wash. Pretty much everyone is checked out. The week between Christmas and New Year's is one of the most popular weeks for people to take off. It is also hell on earth for people who work in retail. So, please make sure when you are feeling all fa la 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 and e pray love that you do not yell at an underpaid and overworked clerk at Talbot's or wherever the fuck you buy your shit. I don't mean you. You are totally cool. I am certain. But because you are listening to me right now, I know that COVID has forced us into new uncharted and unwanted territory. So, please, please be easy on the people that are forced to work with the public. Now, of course, I hope you're all finding ways to stay safe and sane in listening to crime stories. Is an excellent idea, in my opinion. There was no story of Edgewater Technology in Wakefield on Friday, december twenty second, the last day of work before they went on their Christmas break. We would have been happy to have kept it that way. History changed that december twenty sixth, two thousand. Today marks the anniversary of that workplace mass shooting. Twenty years taken from these men and women. These mothers and daughters, fathers and sons, a brand new mother, a grandfather, 20 years taken from children who never got to know their parents. On that Tuesday, the day after Christmas, seven employees who were among half of the staff of Edgewater Technology in Wakefield, Massachusetts, came into work that day, never to make it home. A coworker, armed to the teeth, showed up to the job he'd had for less than a year to exact his revenge, perceived and twisted revenge. Equipped with a shotgun, a semi-automatic assault rifle, and a semi-automatic pistol, and a bag full of ammunition, he had a few chats in the kitchen that morning, walked back to his desk, grabbed his guns, and unceremoniously opened fire. It was a calculated attack that left seven people dead. It lasted less than 10 minutes. Sometime after 11 a.m., Wakefield police began to receive a number of calls about shots fired. As the shots began, several employees who heard the chaos unfolding fled to the store they frequented across the street and called 911. When it was over, seven of the company's employees were dead. Two were killed in the reception area, while five others were found at their desks or in a colleague's workspace. Shell casings and bullets were littered all over the office space. It wasn't hard to find the person who did it. In fact, Police found the shooter sitting calmly in the reception area, the body of a victim laying nearby. With his weapons in reach, he was arrested without incident. The killer had no prior criminal record and was not known to law enforcement. As the identities of those who were killed were made public, the news of the day became even sadder. Jennifer Bragg Capobianco was the 29-year-old new mom who'd returned from maternity leave just days before Christmas and was helping out in accounting temporarily. Jennifer was actually part of the marketing group and had been working off-site for most of the time. She grew up in Washington, D.C. and went to the University of Massachusetts in Amherst where she met her husband, Jeff. They were college sweethearts who'd gotten married in 1998 and rented an apartment in Brighton, an area of Boston. Jeff was working as an EMT, and friends called them the ideal couple. They were excited when their first baby, Eva, arrived two and a half months earlier. They were devoted new parents who had just celebrated their baby's first Christmas. Jennifer was looking forward to raising her daughter. Janice Haggerty was the 46-year-old office manager from Stoneham. Janice had agreed to cover the front desk so the company's receptionist could go on vacation. Her kindness may have cost her her life she is likely the first person who was killed that day. She left behind her husband, Daniel, and her 20-year-old daughter, Erin. Cheryl Troy was 50 years old and the company's vice president of human resources since 1998. She'd previously worked for the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, also known as the MBTA. Cheryl lives in Beverly on the North Shore at the time of her death, and she grew up in North Attleboro. graduated from North Attleboro High School in 1968. She then attended Leslie College, where she got her bachelor's degree. Her sister Paula described her as an animal lover who loved spending time at the ocean, especially singing beach in Manchester by the sea. She was absolutely the nicest person anyone could have ever known. She wouldn't have hurt anyone, her sister said. Rose Manifredi, the accounting payroll administrator from Lexington, was killed one day before her 49th birthday. She was a single mother of two kids and the youngest of 11 kids in her close-knit family. Described as a vibrant and outgoing woman, she taught herself accounting and ran the accounting department at Edgewater, where she was responsible to pay the company's 250 employees. In the days leading up to her murder, the shooter had asked for a cash advance, and Rose told them that she would have to get approval from the company president. That made this employee very angry. And according to Rose's mother, she was afraid of him. Louis Javel was 58 and lived in Nashua, New Hampshire. He was the director of consulting in the company's Manchester, New Hampshire office. He was an army captain who served in Vietnam and had lost his wife a few years before. He was raising his four kids, three sons, and a daughter. He was described as religious and a quiet man. He had been with the company for eight years and was only visiting the Wakefield office the day he was killed. Paul Marco was 36. He was a software development tech from Melrose. He was known as a friendly and giving man who rode in charity bicycle races and volunteered for the American Cancer Society. In a statement released after he was killed, his family said, above all else, Paul was a kind, gentle, and beautiful person that was always willing to extend a hand to family, to friends, and co-workers. The world has lost a genuine, unselfish spirit. Paul left behind two daughters they were 8 and 10. Craig Wood was 29 and lived in Hareville, Massachusetts. Part of the human resources team, he had been with the company for more than two years. Craig and his 26-year-old brother Brian, who also worked at Edgewater, were sharing a condo on the Merrimack River. But on that morning, Craig went to work and Brian attended a class. He didn't get to the office until after the shootings had happened. He was completely distraught when he rolled up on the scene. The families would be dumbstruck once they learned what happened that day and why. Once the chaos and shock of the day had begun to sink in, a larger picture came into focus. The shooter was Edgewater employee Michael McDermott. He was a 42-year-old divorced loner who lived by himself in an apartment he had recently rented in Hereford, Mass., 30 minutes north of Wakefield. McDermott, or Mucko, as he was called. Where'd that name come from? I totally had him pegged as a George Costanza T-Bone kind of guy. And I'm not calling him that. Fuck you, Mucko. Anyway, a nephew gave him the nickname. He did not make it up. I think he wanted to be called Turbo. I made that up. Born September 4th, 1958, as Michael McDermott Martinez, who later changed his name to Michael Morgan McDermott, to sound more Anglo, I guess, Born in Marshfield, Massachusetts, a seaside town on the South Shore, to schoolteacher parents Richard and Rosemary, he was one of four kids with a strict Catholic upbringing. He acted in school plays and was said to have high intelligence, but did poorly in high school. As a kid in a small town, he found minor trouble by breaking into a neighbor's house. McDermott testified to being raped repeatedly as a boy as young as eight years old. He blamed a neighbor As he got older, he faced more emotional issues and did attempt suicide as a teenager. His parents did offer support and sent him to see a psychologist, but McDermott was untrusting of the doctor-patient relationship. It appears as though perhaps the doctor let his parents in on some of the issues that he was having, and it may have completely soured him to pursuing therapy at that point in his life. He made it to high school graduation and then joined the Navy. He served six years, working mainly on a nuclear submarine. He was honorably discharged in June 1982. Meaning, and as I understand it, if a military service member received a good or excellent rating for their service time by exceeding standards for performance and personal conduct, they would be discharged from the military honorably. An honorable military discharge is a form of administrative discharge. It is a separation from the service rather than retirement. Now I get it. Thanks for walking through that with me. That year, he took a civilian job at the Maine Yankee Nuclear Power Plant in Wiscasset, Maine, a beautiful town on Maine's central coast. Maine is magnificent. Go there. Locals and non-locals, when it is safe to do so. The plant operated from 1972 until 1996 and was, if I had to guess, a good job source for people in the region. It was closed down when it became too expensive to fix. Now, when it was built in the 1960s, it cost some $230 million to construct. No jump change. McDermott performed favorably and got a promotion at the plant in 1985 and was training to become a reactor operator, a position he never ended up holding. All of this led to a great deal of stress for him, and he made another attempt at suicide. He was hospitalized in Pembroke near his hometown. Then in 1988, he filed a workers' compensation claim against Maine Yankee when he learned he would not be able to return. He won that claim and received a settlement in the area of $85,000. His hospital records, as revealed in court documents, indicated that the attempt to take his own life was due to his feeling of helplessness in as much as he felt he was doing everything correctly, but the world was not treating him fairly. It was just everyone around him. Then in May 1989, he was admitted to a Boston hospital for suicide ideation while studying at Northeastern University. By the turn of the new decade, he was living in Weymouth, Massachusetts, and working at his new job as a technologist in the battery products group of Duracell and Needham. Stress seemed to be the trigger for his ideation, and he made another attempt and was back at Pembroke Hospital for seven weeks. By 1992, things seemed to have stabilized for McDermott. He rekindled a friendship with a woman he knew from high school, and the two were married on September 26, 1992. The marriage to Monica Sheehan lasted about four years. They separated May 1996 and divorced a year later. It's right about that time when McDermott's appearance began to change. He had gained a significant amount of weight and stopped grooming his hair and beard. People did notice his shaggy appearance. Despite all of this, He held on to his job at Duracell for 10 years and was given the option to move with the company to its new location in Bethel, Connecticut, an area very close to Newtown, actually. God bless those families, by the way. This month marked eight years since that mass shooting. Not wanting to move to Connecticut, McDermott resigned from Duracell and took a job with Edgewater Technology as associate software tester in March 2000. By that fall, shit was hitting the fan and he had growing debt. He owed back rent at his Weymouth apartment and moved an hour north to Haverhill, and things were about to get much worse. In the Commonwealth versus Michael McDermott, I am about to dig in to some court documents. Please join me. Michael McDermott started at Edgewater Technology in February 2000. His employment there seems to be pretty benign. I wasn't able to find anything substantial to indicate that his co-workers thought he might be dangerous. On December 14th, 2000, he had a conversation with Cheryl Troy, the VP of HR, and Patricia Bohr, the company's chief financial officer, about his unpaid taxes. The IRS had notified Edgewater Technology wage garnishment was to take place and that a portion from his paycheck was to be taken. He owed some $5,500 in back taxes. Edgewater was required to do the garnishment until the lien was paid in full. McDermott insisted that he did not owe the IRS any money. He was very angry and indicated that he did not understand why Edgewater had to comply. Later that same afternoon, Mark Tamboragian, the program manager in charge of the application support team that McDermott was a part of, made a plan to help resolve the tax lien. On December 18th, Damborajian joined McDermott in a telephone conference with the IRS that terminated when Damborajian realized that nothing was going to be resolved. McDermott was unwilling to set up any payment arrangements and was adamant that he would not pay any money to the IRS. He was doubling down on that. He was having financial trouble, he was behind on his car payment, and had recently left his Weymouth apartment owing back rent. And because he owed so much on his car, it was about to be repossessed by the bank. He had started to park on the street in the neighborhood around Edgewater instead of the employee parking garage across the street. On Friday, December 22nd, McDermott asked three of his co-workers to come to his cubicle and witness the signing of his will. He walked them through the instructions, they witnessed his signature to the document, and then they signed it themselves. On Sunday, December 24th, the defendant test-fired a shotgun off the side of Crystal Street in a secluded area of Haverhill, which was about five minutes from the defendant's residence. On Monday, Christmas Day, December 25th, McDermott entered Edgewater Technology at 6.57 p.m. and left 18 minutes later. On Tuesday, December 26th, McDermott entered Edgewater at 10.29 a.m. carrying a large black duffel bag. It was right after he parked his car in the Edgewater employee garage. He walked into the office kitchen, had a brief conversation with one of the senior consultants. McDermott also engaged in a conversation with another co-worker about living in Haverhill. It is possible that this was Craig Wood, who also lived in a condo on the river in Haverhill. McDermott, a.k.a. the defendant, and I am aware that I'm saying both throughout the story, he was cordial but abruptly ended that conversation when the coworker noticed a large black duffel bag on his desk. At approximately 11.07 a.m., McDermott got a call at his desk about the status of his car, or rather the car payment. He told the rep on the phone that he no longer needed the car, and where they could find it. He parked at the one place he avoided for weeks, the Edgewater Employee Garage. When he ended that call with the bank, McDermott walked from his desk to the reception area carrying the duffel bag. Janice Haggerty was covering reception that day and was at the front desk with Cheryl Troy. When she saw McDermott coming down the hallway with the bag, she asked, where are you going with that bag? And all he said was, actually, I need to see someone in human resources. It would be the last moments that Janet and Cheryl would be alive. McDermott aimed the assault rifle and fired twice, and then 10 more times in rapid succession, killing both Janet and Cheryl. Then he quietly said, ah, it's okay. I don't know if that was some attempt at comfort. It's sick either way. The accounting department was on the south side of the building where Linda Tessia worked in accounts payable. She heard loud noises coming from the north side of the building and called Janice Haggerty in reception. She did not answer. Rose Manafridi was the payroll manager responsible for biweekly payroll and was processing payroll on that day. Payday was that Friday, December 29th, and scheduled as the first week that Michael McDermott's salary would be garnished. Rose was standing with Paul Marco, a project leader, by a filing cabinet in the accounting area of the office. She asked Linda Tessier to shut and lock the door. Linda told everyone to get under their desks. Paul climbed under a coworker's desk. Linda hid under her desk. She pulled her chair in that had her jacket draped over the back of it. Jonathan Land, the VP of Consulting Services, was talking with Louis Javel, the director of the same group. He was also McDermott's direct supervisor. They were in a hallway in the mezzanine area of the south side of the building facing reception. McDermott walked toward them, assault rifle in one hand and something else in the other. When he was approximately 15 feet away from the two men, Lewis said, oh shit. Jonathan Land went back to his office and heard Lewis ask, Mike, why? This was followed by a loud popping sound. It's certainly unclear to me, How Jonathan Land was reacting, or if he even knew what was taking place at that moment? McDermott aimed his weapon at Lewis and shot him four times, killing him. Jonathan Land then heard Craig Wood, a technical recruiter who had been sitting in his cubicle in the mezzanine area. He said, Mike, no. He was shot in two series of blasts, killing him. Between the series of blasts, Craig was heard saying, ow, then please. McDermott moved on to kill Jennifer Capobianco, who was working in accounting only temporarily and was seated in a cubicle in the mezzanine area not far from where Craig Wood was. He shot her four times in the back. He then headed to accounting and fired through the locked door. From under the desk, Linda Tassier saw Legs walking by. She peeked out from behind her jacket and saw McDermott holding a rifle in his right hand. He stopped between the cubicles that Paul Marco and Rose Manifredi were under and raised his left arm toward Paul. Linda closed her eyes and heard two shots. After a third shot, she heard Rose yell. He went on to shoot many more times. She screamed, and the defendant shot her again. She heard gurgling, and Rose died within minutes. Paul was shot in the head, the abdomen, and the chest, killing him instantly. At 11:14 a.m., calls began to flood 911 from 30 to 40 different callers, all reporting shots fired at Edgewater Technology. Officers from the Wakefield Police Department were dispatched to the scene. When officers entered the building, they found a motionless Michael McDermott sitting in a chair in the reception area with both arms by his side on the armrests. The duffel bag was on a couch and there was an AK-47 semi-automatic rifle on the floor by the defendant's right foot and a 12-gauge Winchester 1300 pump-action shotgun at his left foot. These weapons were out of ammunition. The officers told him to put his hands up and to get on the ground. He did not respond. An officer again directed the defendant to put his hands on his head, to which he replied, I don't speak German. Two officers pulled him to the ground and handcuffed him. When searched, they found a loaded thirty caliber semi-automatic pistol in his right front pocket. The duffel bag contained several fully loaded magazines, loose ammunition, shotgun shells, and some cartridge boxes. Officers instructed him to roll over and stand up, to sit back down on the chair and to lift his legs so his boots could be removed and searched. And then they needed to figure out how to place him in a police cruiser to avoid injury due to his large size. None of the victims survived. All were pronounced dead at the scene. In each person's cause of death, with the exception of Janice Haggerty, multiple gunshots. Janice died almost instantly from a gunshot wound to her head. And she had also been shot in the back. She was running away from him. All of the shooting victims had been alive when they were repeatedly shot. It is clear he sought out a number of individuals. These shootings were not at random. Numerous cartridge casings, projectiles, discharged 12-gauge shotgun shells, and fragments were recovered from areas of the office floor. Another weapon was also recovered at the scene. A Mark V Weatherby 460 Magnum caliber rifle was in his workstation. It looks very much like a hunting rifle. That you'll see in the movies. It is a hunting rifle that you see in the movies. Brown has the scope, long gun. But this this wasn't a movie. This was real life. This man massacred these people. He worked among them for months. Then he killed them. Every time there is a mass shooting like this, there's always a call to arms. An unfortunate use of words I know. But following the shootings at Edgewater. Wakefield Police worked with the College of Criminal Justice at Northeastern University to conduct a survey of businesses in Wakefield as part of a pilot program to prevent workplace violence. The problem with these kinds of incidents is that they are so hard to predict. Stating the obvious is Jack McDevitt, Associate Dean of the College of Criminal Justice at Northeastern. It is easy in hindsight to say this person was disgruntled or angry but there are lots of disgruntled and angry people who are let-going companies every day who don't do this. There are many challenges to preventing workplace violence, and little research existed in 2000. High-profile incidents have prompted changes at many small and mid-sized businesses that previously had no plan in dealing with terminating disgruntled workers. We have a general understanding of the term going postal. Which is an unfortunate term that came from the phenomenon of workplace shootings by postal workers. A series of deadly incidents from 1986 on, in which United States Postal Service workers shot and killed their managers, their coworkers, police officers, and members of the public in acts of mass murder. It's considered spree killing. Between 1970 and 1997, more than 40 people were killed by current or former employees in at least 20 incidents of workplace aggression. Between 1986 and 2011, workplace shootings happened roughly twice a year, with an average of 11 people killed per year. Most spree killers have been men, but not all. On January 30, 2006, six people at Goleta, California, Mail Processing Center were gunned down by a former postal employee named Jennifer San Marco. The 44-year-old killed five people immediately, and one died later a seventh victim, a former neighbor at the Santa Barbara condo that the killer had had arguments with prior to her moving out, was also found dead and connected with her crime spree. San Marco took her own life that day. Now, without getting too deep into the details of this crime, it appears that her paranoia and her history of mental illness drove her to act out on perceived vendettas against former neighbors and former coworkers. Jennifer San Marco had been removed from her job at the Postal Processing Center, but she returned to exact her twisted revenge. According to Jack McDevitt, Mr. Obvious, what we have been able to learn is the best way to handle these kinds of situations is to do the termination in a very professional way, to try not to be personal about it, and let that employee have as much dignity as they can while you're in a difficult situation. Was there any way to stop Michael McDermott? It's only half of the story. Could he have been fired for being disgruntled? It's hard to say. He was performing well at his job. And there are reports that he was late a lot. Was he reprimanded? Was he written up? Were warnings issued? Was there any accountability at all? His appearance was disheveled, but he was hired that way. A messy appearance isn't code for a killing spree. I have lots of pals with bushy beards. They're all in metal bands, and they wouldn't hurt a fly. It's so true. Metal boys are so nice. They look scary and menacing. They have hearts like little studded teddy bears with bullet belts. This is a heavy story, and there's lots of information. So I'll return next week with Part 2 of Episode 7, Michael McDermott, Edgewater, Day After Christmas, Spree Killing, Wakefield, Massachusetts. Thank you for listening to Crime of the Truest Kind. Online, crimeofthetruestkind.com. Crime of the Truest Kind on Facebook and Instagram. At Truest Kind on Twitter. Please follow and subscribe on all the places you listen to your crime stories. Throw me a rating. Season's greetings. Thanks for your messages. Some of you have sent DMs. Even story suggestions. Bring it on. Right. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for part two coming out next week. In Lock Your Goddamn Doors.